Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the podcast, and I'd like to remind our listeners that they can subscribe to and rate this program on iTunes or Stitcher, where in addition to our website, all of our previous uh, interviews may be streamed or downloaded. So for today's program, I'm speaking with John Alba Cutler, author of Ends of Assimilation, The Formation of Chicano Literature, published by Oxford University Press in 2015. Dr. Cutler is an assistant professor of English at Northwestern University, where he specializes in U.S. Latino literatures, multi-ethnic American poetry, contemporary American literature, and print cultural studies. Hello, John, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. Hi, DJ. Thanks so much for having me on. Great. Well, it's a pleasure to talk to you, and I was hoping you can begin our discussion today by telling us a little bit about your personal and professional background. Uh, sure, absolutely. So uh, I come from Salt Lake City originally. I come from uh, a mixed family. My uh, my dad's family is is white, Anglo, and my mom uh, comes from a family of uh, migrant farm workers. Uh, she grew up in Piedras Negras in, in Coahuila, Mexico. And uh, that uh, kind of bicultural uh, family background was always really, uh, really important to me. When I got to college, uh, I encountered uh, Chicano literature and Latino literature for the first time, and it really kind of changed my my own understanding of uh, you know my my place in the world, my family's uh, history, and, and all that. Uh, I ended up getting a, a PhD in English from UCLA, and uh, wrote my uh, dissertation on the on the topic that would have, would eventually become uh, ends of assimilation. And uh, yeah, so that's that's my my family background. Yeah, I think you're f- the first Salt Lake City na- native that I've uh, I've talked to. Uh, so I find that interesting. Where do you do your um, undergraduate work? I went to to BYU there in Utah. Oh yeah, yeah, great, great in Provo. Yeah, I got a lot of friends that went there as well. Well, a number of them. My sister went there as well. So great. Well, that's oh, really? quite a neat. Okay. Yeah, that's a neat trajectory uh, from Salt Lake. To uh, to L.A., UCLA, and now you're at Northwestern in Chicago. Yeah, a little different. I had a, a friend in grad school in film, Rob Hernandez, who's from Denver, and uh, he used to say we were the mountain Chicanos, which uh, <laughs> I did. <laughs> nice. Well, uh, you know, one of the things that really caught my attention about your book, uh, you know, in association with this channel and, and my own work and teaching and research, I'm, of course, always looking for, for new stuff. But the title really stood out to me. And I don't remember exactly where I saw it, where, whether I was scanning Oxford's catalog or something. But uh, again, the, the title just kind of grabbed me. And particularly as I started to read the book uh, and realize how it signals, you know, your project to analyze Chicano literature alongside assimilation sociology. And for me, as a, I'm a historian by training, right? So I have my favorite pieces of Chicano literature, of course, and but I in no mm-hmm. consider myself well-read. So I don't know if this is a very common theme in, in uh, uh, Chicano uh, you know, literary studies or, or criticism. But uh, 
it, it is, in fact, the central theme of your book, you know, to examine the tension or disjuncture between these two genres, or as you refer to them, uh, I love this quote here, uh, two institutionalized discursive fields that advance rival representations of the same process. So to get us started on the book, we talk a bit about this tension uh, between, you know, these two uh, discursive fields that are at the, really at the central of your, your, your book. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so it, it's funny that you um, draw attention to the title because actually the, the way that the, um, the way that this book evolved has something to do with uh, seeing the tension between these two discursive fields. Uh, was the, the thing that I wrote in graduate school, the dissertation that I wrote, um, the title was originally Assimilation and its Discontent. And uh, I was thinking about uh, sort of literary texts that thematize processes of assimilation. Um, but I really, the book was more psychoanalytic. It was more interested in individual subject formation mm-hmm. and desire and gender and things like that. And it was uh, uh, in revising the dissertation and, and kind of uh, looking around and, and trying to broaden my sense of how um, scholars had engaged with the idea of assimilation that I began um, to see that there was this huge body of, of sociological literature uh, about assimilation that was really complicated and, and interesting, um, but very uh, obviously very different from uh, what uh, I was encountering in the uh, in the literary texts themselves. So uh, I ended up doing a sort of crash course in in uh, sociology and assimilation sociology uh, specifically. And the thing that I found that was so interesting was that although uh, assimilation, uh, right, the sort of changes in culture, uh, language acquisition, changes in class status, all of those things that uh, seem to be that we we refer to uh, with the shorthand of assimilation. So all those, although all of those things are, are thematized just incessantly in Chicano literary texts, the way that Chicano literary texts think about them and, and talk about them is really different from the way that sociologists have, have historically uh, done so. Right. And that difference began to be really interesting to me, partly because my sense was that the sociology had been really influential in, uh, in just American culture generally in a way that, that wasn't the case for Chicano literature. Yeah, no, that's, that, is, uh, that is really neat how you, you, you notice that. And that's something that you know, it's uh, that again. I'm not very well read, uh, at least in in the forms of Chicano literature, um, or typically the classics. But it's you know, as you brought it up, and as I was reading through the introduction, it became so clear to me that this is, you know, that this the, the themes uh, and and aspects of the the underlying assumptions that that are based in assimilation, um, you know, theories and, and sociology are are really key themes in in a lot of uh, you know Chicano literary, literary works. And so I wanted to talk a, a bit more. About that, uh, and uh, in the introduction, particularly, this book is a, is a literary history. You you track the development of Chicano literature alongside its intersection with an engagement with assimilation sociology, as we have been discussing here. And so it it forms you know chronologically, and and uh, you begin uh, with some works that were came out before the the initial Chicano movement. We'll get to that, but I wanted to focus more about the. First, the disjuncture between the two histories that you bring up, and that is the history of sociological thought 
and the history of uh, Chicano literature. So uh, will you talk about that a bit, about uh, how these two histories are a bit misaligned? Of course. So I think that they're misaligned in a really important way. This is a, a claim that I make in the, in the introduction to my book. Uh, the, the misalignment refers to the, the kind of strange institutionalization of the two discourses. So assimilation sociology, uh, it, it enters public discourse and it enters uh, higher education really with the Chicago School of Sociology in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, and all of the all of the big names associated with that, Robert Park and, and Louis Wirth and Leo Sroll and W. Lloyd Warner and uh, all of those guys. And it was, I think there's several aspects to the way that um, assimilation began to be described by these, sociologies, uh, these sociologists, that, uh, um, several aspects that are really important. So uh, one aspect that is uh, really important is that assimilation, um, because it was initially uh, advanced as a, as a kind of anti-racist discourse, it was supposed to be an answer to the eugenics and, and nativist movements of the right. 19-teens and 1920s. Mm-hmm. It, it put a lot of emphasis on the mutability of ethnicity and right. culture. Um, so the uh, you know the idea of change over time and that eventually um, ethnic differences would fade. Uh, another really important uh, feature of this assimilation sociology was that it focused mainly on on white European ethnic groups in uh, the Northeast and in and mostly in northeastern urban settings. So we're looking at the assimilation of uh, really the the big immigrant groups from the beginning of the 20th century: um, Italians and and uh, Greeks and Eastern European uh, Jews and and uh, many of these groups that are associated with, uh, you know, the Immigration Act of 1924 and the beginning of immigration quotas. So that's another really important aspect because what it meant was that uh, all of the the focus on ethnicity meant that assimilation sociology developed this really, uh, really kind of uncomfortable blind spot or or, um, uh, inability to think about race. Uh, uh, It was unable to incorporate uh, an analysis of uh, blackness, for example, into uh, the, the kind of paradigms of assimilation. Um, and then one one other really important feature of uh, the way that this discourse uh, was consolidated was that it took for granted that uh, the nation was the natural unit for thinking about culture, right? So right. Uh, it thought about something like American culture, and it sort of assumed that we all understood what the boundaries of that culture were, so that assimilation was always about uh, basically passing from uh, some kind of ethnic culture into this American culture. So uh, to go back to uh, this idea of misalignment, right. of course, the Chicano movement, uh, the Chicano movement, all the activism that we associate with it really comes to uh, come to its apex in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And it's a time period when um, because of the, uh, you know, the rise of ethno-nationalist movements, um, the kind of multiculturalism on in higher education, assimilation sociology has really fallen out of favor. Right. Um, so there's not, not not a lot of sociologists who are are continuing to advance the ideas and arguments of assimilation sociology. And in fact, the Chicano movement, uh, alongside uh, you know the, the Black Arts movement and the American Indian movement and uh, these other ethno nationalist movements, the the activists in this movement see themselves 
as anti-assimilationists in a really important way. So the way that they see themselves as anti-assimilationists is uh, in response to uh, really uh, the, the nationalism of the earlier mode of assimilation and a way that um, the, the ideas of these sociologists got translated into popular culture. But what I wanted to, I guess what I wanted to say about the, the, the misalignment, though, that I think is so important um, is that because the, uh, the activists in the Chicano movement were not, they weren't sharing the field with uh, assimilation sociologists, there's a way that, that there's never really a, a conversation between what's happening, uh, between right. uh, the, you know, the, the literary works and the sociology. Uh, so the assumptions of each field are never being questioned uh, one against the other, right? Right, and I think that that leads to you know interesting consequences for for both sociology and and literature. Well, yeah, in, and I'm thinking in particular, it's not as you bring up this misalignment, right? It's it, it's it was more the case that uh, you know Chicano uh, authors uh, were kind of responding in ways, or at least. You know, in representing their culture, countering in ways, you know, these theories, whether intentionally or, or not. But it's not as if there's ever a conversation between the two, because it's not like assimilation, you know, sociologists or theorists were, were essentially ever aware of Chicano literature until, you know, very recently now. You may have some that are that are reading it and engaging with it or at least know of it while they're, you know, forming and revising theories. But uh, so in that way, there's that's why this is a an ascend a history of uh, intersecting you know themes uh, and concepts, right? As opposed to any type of you know discourse between the two. Right. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. Um, you know, and I think another you know really kind of uh, important thing about this um, sort of um, uh, misalignment is that um, the way that we um, the, the assumptions that we bring to thinking about um, what Chicano literature represents when it's thinking about assimilation, um, we don't recognize where they come from, right? Because they, 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 these things aren't emerging simultaneously, right? So we can say we can see the way that Chicano literature is uh, is responding maybe to an earlier discourse um, or responding to something. I think in, I, I actually think um, in general that the way um, uh, literary scholars have uh, read Chicano literature and read the way that it treats assimilation is that they're responding to the idea of assimilation without mm-hmm. really saying where that idea comes from. Right. 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 So uh, it, it, to 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 kind of excavate um, or or trace back at least a, a genealogy of ideas about assimilation, I think really helps helps us see what's at stake in the kinds of representations that Chicano literature is putting forth and. And the kinds of um, uh, changes that it's, it's trying to make in, in how we understand the way that culture works. Right, and and on that notion, in the in the changes to culture, that's in fact one of your contentions that uh, you know Chicano literature has has in many ways been um, interpreted primarily as anti-assimilationist, but you argue argue that's just you know one strand of um, you know Chicano literature writing. So can you explain that a bit further, particularly the you know, the, the other strand that, that doesn't get as much coverage. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I, I think that's a great, que- uh, a great question and a really important one. And I, I, I feel that this is a really uh, important uh, part of my argument. Um, so I think it's important first to, to, to say that when I say that Chicano literature is not anti-assimilationist, 
And I really think that the majority of Chicano literature is not anti-assimilationist. Uh, what I what I mean is that that uh, anti-assimilationism uh, that term it, it makes the same assumptions that assimilationism does mm-hmm. about the way that cultural change happens. Right. Um, so um, anti-assimilationism, right, would be to say that it's true that when there are you know two cultures that encounter one another, uh, that you have a choice about which culture to, uh, you know, which culture to make your own and that, uh, you can simply, you know, cross a boundary that separates you from the dominant culture. And, um, and then therefore that that choice is sort of a choice about loyalties and, uh, you know, about politics. Right. But, you know, the way that we experience culture is, is really a a lot more um, complicated than that, right? There are a lot of, there are a lot of things about the way that we experience culture that are out of our control. Um, language, for example, is really good. Uh, is, 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 uh, or language is a really good example of this. So I begin, uh, I begin the book by quoting um, from this poem by Lorna, uh, Lorna Di Cervantes called Parco de Refugiados, or Refugee Ship, mm-hmm. which is printed uh, bilingually in Cervantes' book, Emplumada. And it's, it's in the poem, um, uh, the, the poet talks about kind of standing before the mirror. She says, I, I see in the mirror my reflection, bronze skin, black hair, and she can see uh, her sort of embodied racial identity. Mm-hmm. Um, but the poem in the poem, she's also expressing anxiety about linguistic fluency. She says, uh, Mama raised me without language. I'm orphaned from my Spanish name. And I think this is a really good example of how um, some you know, aspects of culture operate beyond our control and how that can really that can lead to a lot of anxieties uh, uh, on the part of individuals and, and on the part of groups, right? Um, I think that, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of Chicanos, a lot of Latinos uh, would intuitively uh, understand the, the anxiety that Cervantes is expressing there about right. linguistic fluency, right? Like not, um, not being able to speak Spanish as well as, uh, you know, uh, relatives uh, from Mexico or as well as somebody from another generation or conversely speaking Spanish much better than, uh, you know, uh, uh, a monolingual English speaker or uh, in my case, uh, varying degrees of fluency, even among like siblings in my family or cousins or something like that. Right. And that, that you know, that's a, that can be a, a point of, of a lot of anxiety. It can be a point of um of kind of social sorting, you know, sorting people into hierarchies of more or less authentic. Uh, my point, my point then about Chicano literature not being anti-assimilationist is that Chicano literature understands how complicated these things are. It understands how much of this is out of the control of individuals, mm-hmm. and so many Chicano literary texts are more interested in in portraying the complexity of cultural encounters, the complexity right. of cultural. Change, the, the 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 many different choices and trade offs that happen. Um, that uh, that my argument is that anti-assimilationism doesn't capture that sense. It doesn't capture the sense of that complexity. It's not about simply hanging on to Mexican culture exactly. and not yeah. choosing American culture. Right? It's it's about um, you know thinking about um, all of the different uh, all of the different factors that play into these um, choices. Right. And that also, in fact, that, um, you know, Chicano literature is, is actually evidence that 
that Chicano culture itself and ethnic Mexican culture is, you know, it, it's not static, right? It's it's evolving. It's productive, you know. So um, in that way also, you know, in, in just, you know, producing these cultural artifacts, if you will, or representations, um, you know, that inherently changes the culture or evolves the culture, right, rather than even if one is reflecting on one's past experience, uh, it's not that simple aspect of just trying to cling on to and maintain uh, an element of culture is in opposition to the dominant, uh, you know, American culture, so-called American culture, right? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. That's absolutely right. I think that's a really important, uh, you know, a really important facet of representation that we have to keep in mind that right, no representation is simply uh, transparent. No language is simply transparent. So, uh, you, one version of, of anti-assimilationism, uh, as, as you, uh, you know, referred to there, would be something like cultural maintenance, right? Right. Um, something like saying we need to, to hang on to and preserve and, and maintain Chicano culture or Mexican culture how it is. Um, but what's the way to do that, right? Well, let's say, you know, one way you might do that is by writing a poem or a novel uh, about a certain aspect of Chicano culture, but the second you write the poem, the second you write the poem, you're shaping it. Right. You're, you're, you're transforming the culture in a sense. You're, you're creating it. So uh, that, that it's, it's, a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a quixotic enterprise, mm-hmm. right? Uh, not, and in fact, not just a little bit. I think it's an entirely quixotic enterprise. Right. Um, but I, but I want to say that Chicano literature is aware of that. Chicano cultural production in general, although you know, my, my, my specialty is in literature, Chicano literature is aware of that. It, it's not trying to just hang on. It, it's trying to advance and move forward and always create new forms that are dynamic and challenging and, and rich and, and complicated. And this is actually, I think, one of the, one of the blind spots of assimilation sociology um, in that um, assimilation sociology, uh, particularly during, during the heyday of the Chicago school in the, in the uh, 20s and 30s and 40s, thinks of itself as a scientific discourse, right? right? A, a discourse that can, uh, can describe with some precision, some uh, empirical uh, precision, what is happening in the culture. But you can see that the rise of assimilation sociology, it introduces something into the culture. It introduces a way of talking about cultural encounters. Exactly. It's been profoundly influential uh, so what, I think that this is something that uh, the, especially that early generation of sociologists was blind to was the fact that they weren't just describing culture, they were creating it, mm-hmm. right? They were, they were mm-hmm. producing it and, and influencing it. Well, and I think this is why your, your training, particularly in, in literature, uh, has got you to, to see this key intersection between the two uh, literatures or genres, um, that through the lens of, of literary discourse. Because you, you make the point in particular that... Uh, you know, that assimilation, um, you address assimilation as ide- ideology and not um, empirical science. Uh, and, uh, you know, through the fact that it is it is shaping discourse and it's not merely, you know, this disinterested observer of a, of a social process, you know, but that assimilation itself is is reinscribing and even to quote here, it reinscribes as fact the fiction of, a, of one, right, a unitary national culture. It ignores the mm-hmm. interlinking of race and gender and cultural formation. It valorizes upward economic mobility, uh, all of these things, right? 
And so I wonder if you can expound a bit more about on that, you know, on this 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 aspect and, and particularly your intersecting and, and interpretation of assimilation uh, uh, sociology through, you know, the lens of, of literary discourse. Yeah, thank you. Um, so uh, that, that's all, this is all so important, right, that um, the, the way that assimilation sociology unfolds is through language, right? I mean, there um, of course, there are, there are studies that are done. There are, you know, certain things that you can quantify. Um, but at, at, at its root, I want to say assimilation sociology is a story that we tell. Um, and it's a story that we tell about how, you know, how immigrants or how um, ethnic Americans become simply American, right, uh, without the, the ethnic attachment. Right. So... Um, the, the various parts of that sentence that you quoted are uh, what I think are really important parts of this story. Um, so uh, uh, one of them is that there is such a thing as American culture, uh, which I think I, was, uh, I had alluded to earlier when uh, talking about um, the way that assimilation sociology came to be. Mm-hmm. So I, I actually... I think that there are many different American cultures. I think, you know, uh, the United States is a really big place, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a place that uh, uh, has a lot of different regional cultures, a lot of different um, ethnic cultures, a lot of different um, class cultures. And uh, the fiction of this kind of unified American culture that, eth- you know, ethnic uh, subjects or immigrants should aspire to is really is really damaging um, because, for one thing, uh, how is you know, how is any individual going to identify which is the right American culture to right. assimilate to? <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, but, for, but for another thing, even, uh, you know, even for, uh, let's say, like, uh, white middle-class Americans, right, um, it, 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 allows the, uh, it allows this kind of uh, presumption of, of uh, superiority or, or transparency, right, that, that, uh, that my cultural values are somehow universalizable. Um, so that's what you, that's one really important part of this the story that assimilation sociology tells. Another really important part of the story that assimilation sociology tells is that assimilation is something that kind of happens um, in this abstract, rarefied intellectual space. Um, and what I mean by that is that it doesn't happen to raced and gendered bodies. Gender is almost completely absent from uh, assimilation sociology, um, as is sexuality. And I think this is a really, really important, um, a, a really significant contribution of Chicano literature, is that it, 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 it is always attuned to the ways that changes in culture or encounters between culture shake us to the core of who we are. And often the core of who we are is, uh, I, I want to say often, I want to say always, is bound up with uh, how we imagine desire, uh, and with how we see ourselves uh, in 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 gendered and, and in raced terms. So, uh, you know, just I'll just say one really great example of this. A, a novel that I love is Arturo Islas' *The Rain God*, uh, a novel from uh, the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And the the main character of that novel is uh, a gay man, uh, a Mexican American man, lives in in San Francisco, and he feels really dislocated and alienated from his uh, his Mexican family. That, uh, he grew up in, in Paso, uh, Texas. And one way of understanding his alienation would be through the old terms of assimilation, right? That he's, he's, he's come to see himself as American. He's 
middle class. He's an artist, right? That he's, right. he's made certain choices that have distanced himself from his Mexican past. I, I think that that would be a really strong misreading and misunderstanding of the novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, there's a, a, a really kind of complicated relationship between the narrator's gender and sexuality, his sense of being insufficiently masculine for his Mexican father, for example, that feed into uh, his, his physical and uh, spiritual dislocation and, and alienation from his family. And if you don't factor those things into it, Right then, you're you're flattening out and you're reducing uh, his experiencing his experience as well as your own um, un, you know your own understanding of, of what that novel um, right. does and what it produces. Yeah, no, no, and that's a great point, and it it brings to um, mind for me a, a a term that you refer to uh, frequently throughout the book, and and in regards to assimilation, and that is the the specter of assimilation discourse. Can you expand on that a little bit and talk about how, you know, assimilation discourse itself, you know, has this, you know, kind of, uh, you know, you've addressed, we've addressed the, the, the mysticism of it to some extent, but also this kind of, uh, the spectral notion of it, it's kind of always there, it's underlying a lot of discussions, um, people bring it into discussions when it's, not intended, uh, you know, or, or necessarily implicitly, explicitly addressed. So can you explain that a bit further and how you you see that operating, how you see assimilation discourse working in that way? Yeah, thank you. Uh, uh, I see it operating in um, a couple of really important ways. Um, so one way is that um, one reason that I call it a, a specter and I portray it as something that is kind of looming um, is that I think it has animated implicitly, uh, if not explicitly, but implicitly, a lot of Chicano literary scholarship. It animates the impulse to uh, to evaluate the authenticity of certain modes of representation, right? To say that this one is authentically Chicano or authentically Mexican, and this one is not. Right, um, right. And I want to say that it also animates, uh, or it also looms over uh, the attempts of artists uh, of writers uh, when they're uh, creating uh, uh, literary works, right? Um, so knowing that they're going to, you know, knowing that uh, you're going to be judged uh, for uh, the authenticity of the thing that you put forward, and that those anxieties are always, uh, they're, they're always kind of simmering uh, on the surface of Chicano literary texts. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one, that's one, place where I see the, the specter of assimilation kind of looming. I also think, though, that this, that the specter of assimilation looms uh, at, a, at a kind of larger level in American culture generally in, in the assumptions that we make about how assimilation happens, uh, and that this is, uh, this is right. something that uh, Chicano literature shares with other ethnic literatures, Asian American literature, especially there's a, a lot of affinities between the two literatures in this mm-hmm. sense. Of knowing that uh, out, you know, in the dominant culture, that people think, they they think that assimilation is basically just a choice that you make, right? Right, and that they don't uh, they don't really understand uh, the 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 kind of agonistic, uh, uh, painful, uh, and long term consequences of certain choices. Um, and they don't also they also don't understand the 
the, the obstacles, all of the things that are kind of outside of an individual's hands that affect uh, an individual's ability to, to integrate uh, into uh, American culture. Uh, so those are, those are the two places where I see the, the, specter, of the specter of assimilation um, ex- just kind of looming over, um, uh, over the, this book and, and this discourse. Great. Thanks for that. And real quickly, before we, we get in, I do want to discuss some of the examples that you bring from the chapters. Um, but before we get to, get to that, it's something you also bring up in the introduction that uh, part of, you know, the I don't know if, if I'm saying this correctly, but part of the motivation perhaps for this book is that you noticed, um, you know, not just the correlations between uh, assimilation, the in- initial, you know, assimilation theory as it was, you know, um, Put forward by Park and Burgess uh, and the Chicago School, but mm-hmm. you know a sort of resurgence that has come, particularly in late twentieth century and early twenty first century, as scholars have revived the theory or have critiqued it and you know formed their own you know other notions. But it, it all kind of fits within this body that you refer to as assimilation sociology, and and you know in large part you know your book what it does. I think really a great job at mm-hmm. doing it. chapter by chapter. It selects a few works to address, um, you know, those kind of the, the big, you know, signposts, if you will, and assumptions that um, undergird all of these theories, you know, whether they have theories that have tried to right. critique assimilate, you know, traditional classical assimilation uh, theory, uh, or their more recent ones, you know. Um, so can you talk a bit about that? Uh, about the about this uh, resurgence about the resurgence yeah and how your book fits in you know as maybe I don't know if you went so much as a response to it but it certainly intersects with this re- resurgence in assimilation sociology yeah it definitely does so I think it, it's both uh, you know it's, it's both a a response uh, and um, and I think a little bit of a uh, an attempt to to, to build and, and to be part of a, a conversation so. Um, the, you're you're right, right? That there uh, has been this resurgence. That this is something I, I try to detail in the book and the work of contemporary sociologists like um, Richard Alba and Victor Ney, um, Edwin Tejas and Bill Mortis, uh, Tomas Jimenez, uh, you know, among many others. Uh, Julie Agus Vallejo, who I think is at your uh, mm-hmm. institution there at USC, right? Uh, right, and and. In many respects, the work of these contemporary sociologists, I want to say, is is really it's brilliant, it's complicated, it's a, a necessary and really important um, re-envisioning of the possibilities of assimilation. Right. Uh, and and uh, so I, I absolutely, I, I don't want to uh, portray myself as as, um, as discounting or dismissing these works. I think they're really important. Uh, I, you know, and I'll just just say really quickly that I. I strongly recommend uh, uh, Tomas Jimenez's work, especially. I think that's a, a really brilliant book. Um, but I, I do, however, uh, want to say that the, the thing that the contemporary um, assimilation sociology seems to have retained from that earlier Chicago School moment is a faith in the kind of scientific descriptive power of sociological discourse. Mm, mm -hmm. And one of the arguments that my book wants to make is that uh, literature and literary discourse does something different and something that is really valuable. And to the extent that we, uh, in, especially in public discourse, in 
uh, the, in you know the the ways that politicians speak, uh, the kinds of things that make uh, NPR uh, uh, or uh, CNN. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. there's a, a really in, uh, immense privileging of social science in those venues. And I want to say that literature has something to offer. That literature has a, a, a more uh, a more complex and a more self-conscious understanding of how culture operates um, because it's always conscious of being a cultural discourse. Uh, so that's, um, that's partly the, the response that I hope that the, the book makes to this uh, resurgence in, in assimilation sociology. Great. Thank you. Thanks for that. Well, I did want to turn to um, a, a couple of the chapters and um, I guess, you know, let's start with the, let's start with the first one. Um, and it's entitled Becoming Mexican American Literature. And that's where you begin by examining, uh, as I mentioned earlier, three pre-Chicano movement works, uh, labeled mm-hmm. so-called Mexican American novels. Uh, and, uh, that all those many scholars view these early works as assimilationist narratives in ways that is stories that tell of or advocate an assimilation an assimilationist type of perspective, or at least are interpreted that way, you argue that these works uh, disrupt fundamental assumptions about race and gender within assimilation sociology. So you can discuss that uh, in particular, how how these works do so, you know, and even how maybe towards the latter and how they were, they became interpreted by, you know, Chicanos during the movement as, you know, these Mexican-American or assimilationist type of works. Uh, uh, thank you. This is great, right? Um, because I think that gave me a chance. I think that to clarify some of the some of the story that I was telling earlier about the uh, the, the the misalignment of assimilation sociology in, in Chicano literature and the Chicano movement, um, and also I just love these books so much, and and I'm I just am so excited when people want to talk about them. So the the books that I talk about in chapter one are uh, Américo Pérez's novel, George Washington Gómez, which was uh, written in the late 1930s, but not published until 1990. Uh, And then the novel Caballero, which was uh, written by Jovito González. And uh, Eve Rowley is the the pseudonym of of, uh, González's co-author. The the, uh, co-author's real name was Margaret Eimer. And then uh, the third novel is Pocho by Jose Antonio Villarreal, right. uh, uh, which was uh, published in 1959. Okay, so you're right. These, these three novels have often been read as assimilationists. And uh, one of the things that I, uh, or some of the aspects of them that I, I find really interesting uh, are that, uh, well, let me go back. Okay. <laughs> I get so excited to talk about them that I almost don't know where to start. So, <laughs> no problem. Uh, the historical uh, the the uh, the historical moment in which they're written and published is really important because mm-hmm. it precedes the Chicano movement. Right. So it gives us a chance to look at some texts that are thinking about the kinds of cultural changes we describe with the word assimilation before uh, the anti-assimilationist uh, kind of uh, ethos of the Chicano movement rises to, uh, rises to prominence, right? right? So in other words, uh, they're, they're, they're almost like the control group, right? Like mm-hmm. what, mm-hmm. Uh, how would you write a novel about assimilation if you didn't yet have the language of assimilation to write it? Right, right. right. And, it, it, and interestingly, in, in all three of these novels, the word assimilation, that word I think only occurs once. Uh, and it's one reference in, in Pocho, right? Uh, so in Washington, Gomez uh, talks about Americanization, which was a, right. an earlier term, a term from earlier in the 20th century. Uh, 
uh, caballero doesn't really have a term. To, uh, no, they, it, it also uses the word assimilation once, excuse me, and then Potra uses the word assimilation once. Okay, so what, you know, what kind of, how are you going to depict this? So if we were going by the terms of assimilation sociology, right, if we we're going to say these are assimilationist novels, well, maybe they would understand themselves according to the same terms of assimilation sociology. Uh, well, that would mean that they understood assimilation to be a matter of um, what um, what some contemporary assimilation sociologists refer to as boundary-crossing assimilation, mm-hmm. which is the idea that there's a kind of bright line that separates the ethnic culture from the dominant culture, right. and all you got to do is, is walk over it. Yeah. Right? You make some choices, and you can become American. Right. Right? And that's not what is happening in these novels, really, at all. Right? Instead, what they depict are... Uh, moments of intense cultural dynamism, where the encounters between cultures, uneven as they are, are producing new cultural formations. Mm-hmm. Right. And one of the really important parts of the new cultural formations produced by these novels, uh, or it, especially in George Washington Gomez and in Potro, which are both set uh, during the Great Depression, is a big shift in the way that we understand race in uh, America. Uh, and a lot of, uh, I'm building in this chapter on the work of some historians, David Rediger and Matthew Fry Jacobson and May Nye, right. who have traced uh, really uh, the, the expanding, expanding boundaries of whiteness in the late 20s through the, the 1940s. Uh, the way that, uh, uh, you know, European ethnics who would formerly have been considered not quite fully white. Uh, Italian Americans and Greeks and and Jews, right, were enfolded and incorporated into American whiteness, but that this happened paradoxically by hardening the racial boundary between white and non-white. Right, mm-hmm. and you see that in really interesting ways in George Washington Gomez and Pocho, especially in the ways that the Mexican American characters are interacting with a variety of white ethnic uh, or you know white ethnic characters. Asian American characters, uh, African American characters, right? Uh, so that uh, by paying such strict attention to is this a me- Mexican American character is becoming American, we've kind of lost the kind of rich interracial dynamics of uh, these books. Um, right. And then the other the other uh, aspect of this, I think, that's really important is that these are books that are intensely interested in gender and sexuality, becoming. American uh, for Wallington and George Washington Gomez has partly to do with becoming a man, right? Becoming an American man. Uh, he has this sort of emasculating encounter with his father-in-law uh, near the end of the novel where uh, the father-in-law kind of uh, makes fun of his name, George Washington, right? He says, what kind of a, what kind of a name uh, is that for Mexican? And uh, you can see there, right, that it's, this is not just about uh, uh, about Wallington or, or George. He's got two names in the novel. It's not just about Wallington choosing Americanness. It's about Wallington trying to consolidate a certain version of masculinity, right? One that corresponds to white, uh, kind of, uh, middle class Americanness. One that is, uh, grounded in, uh, you know, um, a mode of superiority, a mode of, um, aggression, uh, a mode of kind of assumed, um, uh, just kind of assumed, uh, centrality, right? Like, uh, that, that you know, that you're, you're, you're the center of things, right? That you're the, you're the, um, the, the pole that the world revolves around. Right. 
And uh, so, uh, and so these are, you know, just some of the ways that I see these, these books as, as really upsetting uh, the assumptions that we make about what it means to be an assimilationist novel or to be assimilationist. Right, and that also the the label of of them being assimilationists was part of the politics, right, of the Chicano movement, um, right, and kind of a, a a way of interpreting, you know, previous works and politics as different than your own, and thereby, in some necessity, you know, there had to be some works to be labeled Mexican American to distinguish from the Chicano works. I mean, am I kind of getting that right? Yeah. Yes, that's absolutely right. So this is a, another reason that the, the kind of um, uh, writing and publication dates of these novels is so important. Is we, that they, uh, so if on the one hand they're upsetting, uh, you know, some of the assumptions of assimilation sociology, on the other hand they're also upsetting some of the assumptions of anti-assimilationism during the Chicano movement. And one of those assumptions was, uh, or, or one of the, the ways that assimilationism worked in the Chicano movement was through this generational narrative mm-hmm. that said that Chicanos were, uh, you know, Chicanos were rejecting the assimilationism of a prior generation, the exactly. Mexican-American generation, right? Um, so once you say, well, well, maybe that generation was not assimilationist after all, you right. know, if we, if we, if we reject the, the very terms of assimilation and begin to think about them differently, then we have to reject the idea that they're assimilationists. And that, you know, that ripples forward and makes it, you know, really, uh, I think, um, really should make us question what it means to be anti-assimilationist and, and that entire generational narrative, which I think has, uh, you know, I think, I think it is a, I think it's a suspect narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I completely agree. It's, it's a, it's been a very persuasive and, and dominating, if you will, you know, narrative, I think, within Chicano scholarship that, that has yet to be effectively, I think, countered in ways. But um, I think what a lot of recent scholarship has started to show is how porous that narrative is, you know, and that it, uh, particularly as it was initially articulated and, and really emphasized, I think, by the Chicano generation, that uh, the divisions are much more blurred now, uh, as we've come to see through scholarship, particularly the last 10, 20 years or so, um, than initially it was presented, right? The, the distinctions both in, in politics right. and, and whatnot, but. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, one, one uh, a book that does a really great job of that is Alicia Schmidt Camacho's Migrant Imaginaries, mm-hmm. um, that just, you know, insists that the history of what we think of as Chicano activism, um, but really kind of left labor, Mexican-American organizing goes goes way back, right? That if, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, long before the, the kind of advent of the Chicano movement. Exactly. Well, I do want to give us another, uh, a little bit more time to talk at least about one more chapter. So I'm, I'm trying to hear sure. shortly now to, to try to pick one. Um, and I'm tottering between three and four. I think both of those chapters, uh, I mean, all of them bring up really, I think, poignant themes and, and, uh, that just, uh, and, and by themes I also mean assumptions about assimilation, um, and how it works, uh, that, that just pervade, you know, popular and, you know, media and, and policy discourse. So particularly like in chapter three, um, one of the strong themes that comes out there is, is the, uh, the aspect of cultural capital as a, as a, as a, and class mobility as key signifiers, right, of assimilation. Right. Right. And, and perhaps I don't know if there's, I don't know if there's an aspect of assimilation that is more powerful uh, that is assumed that if if one you know is able to um, experience some type of economic mobility, then that automatically leads to um, 
you know, assimilation. Uh, the other one that you bring out really great, I think, in in, in a number of the chapters um, is also the aspect of, of gender, you know, which goes so well, just mm-hmm. it is a complete blind spot of assimilation theory, particularly the, the aspect of female bodies being actually the, the kind of embodiment of where um, uh uh, the corporal embodiment that is of where assimilation occurs, right? It's, it's almost like right. in ways that even though it was a turn away from eugenicist type of thinking, it's, there's still this aspect of breeding, you know, that you can breed out, you know, the ethnic culture. Um, that right. I think assimilation sociology didn't and still hasn't essentially gotten away from because that's still a measure of assimilation is intermarriage. Right. Um, uh, right. Absolutely. So, and uh, it, it, you know, mm-hmm, go ahead. This point on female bodies, too, I mean, not, you know, not only sort of, uh, you know, an interesting kind of crux uh, of assimilation, but also uh, one of one of its kind of limit points. Right. So um, in, in in chapter four, which is a, is a chapter about Santos' notice of poetry, um, I, 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 you know, I I, uh, I talk at some length about um, the culture of poverty hypothesis in, in sociology and, and the really interesting link between the culture of poverty hypothesis and assimilation sociology. And that link is, in fact, uh, the, 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 the kind of uh, frightening figure in public discourse of the single mother, the mm-hmm. poor single mother, right? So that's the, that's the figure that I argue unites uh, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, uh, um, uh, uh, the report on the Negro family, right, which is what many people see as the, as the kind of um, the the beginning of culture of uh, poverty hypothesis, with some earlier uh, with some earlier texts, especially beyond the melting pot and um, and uh, Oscar Lewis's five families. Uh, so they're all united around this figure of the single mother, and that's you know that's a figure that uh, Cisneros takes up and and turns around and is able to. Uh, to to uh, celebrate and transform in, in her in her poetry and her prose in really important ways. You know that was such a great that's such a great point, and that's one of the things I love most about you know chapter four. I think it did a, really a great job of, of I think as you mentioned posing that you know Chicana feminist, and it's not so much a, a critique because again it was a representation, it was, it was a cultural representation of her experience, but really it just untethers that narrative of the cultural poverty. Uh, so can you, can you just go a bit more along that line and talk a bit more about, you know, how you interpret Cisneros' work, particularly her poetry as really countering that thesis? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So um, one of the, you know, one of the things that I, um, I'm trying to do with, uh, with Cisneros is, is address what, what some people have seen as a, a, a problem in the narrative of the house on Mango Street, which is, uh, at the end of Mango Street, uh, the fact that the the narrator protagonist Esperanza is going to go away that she or and even you know throughout the novel that she desires to leave. Um, so that it seems to be a novel about um, individual escape, right? And um, some you know some critics have felt kind of uncomfortable with that, right? That it, right. it doesn't demonstrate the kind of um, commitment to a collective or a community that. That should be, um, you know, maybe the foundation of a Chicano literary text. Right, which means then that that's so, interpreted, escape is interpreted as assimilation, right? Exactly, right, exactly, right. And that, that becomes a way of, again, you know, uh, using anti-assimilationism to evaluate the authenticity or the, or, or the you know, the value of, of a literary work. And I want to say that there's something really different going on in, in Cisneros' 
uh, work and that you can see uh, more, I think, acutely in her poetry. Um, and especially, uh, I think it's important because she was trained as a poet at the, at the University of Iowa uh, Writers Workshop. So uh, what the, there's kind of two aspects of, uh, uh, two aspects to this, but uh, one aspect is just to think about uh, Cisneros as responding specifically to culture of poverty discourse. So to say that uh, if you've got this discourse that's been so hugely influential, and uh, and maybe I should maybe I should just say um, or gloss what culture of poverty discourse is really oh, yeah. quickly. Which sure, thank you. Is, you know, it's the idea that. Um, although there might be sort of structural conditions that uh, result in certain people, you know, becoming impoverished or poor, that they develop um, behaviors or values that um, are self-defeating and, and entrap them in their poverty, right? right. So it's basically um, it has been understood, I think, by a lot of critics, and, and rightfully so, as a way of uh, blaming the victim, right? Exactly. Saying that right. Uh, if poor people are poor, it's their fault because they have this, these, you know, these um, cultural values that keep them poor. So I want to say that uh, uh, that uh, and and a really key part of cultural poverty discourse is the figure of the single mother, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, in um, in the Moynihan report, for example, uh, there's a lot of attention to the fact that uh, black families. It's uh, it's a, a report on the the, the quote unquote Negro family. Right. Um, that black families are are often matriarchal. And that therefore, you know, um, these, you know, mothers are, they don't have sufficient time or energy or capacity um, to teach their children anything other than, you know, the values that are associated with the culture of poverty. And that's right. what's leading families to be trapped in this cycle. Well, it's not just uh, black families, right? Uh, what Cisneros is attuned to is the way that uh, the Chicana families, Puerto Rican families, uh, uh, you know, um, all you know, many different uh, uh, non-white kind of ethnic or, or immigrant uh, groups have been um, stigmatized through a, a similar discourse, a re, uh, portraying then the upward mobility of uh, poor women of color has become a re, uh, uh, and not, not and I don't want to say just the upward mobility portraying the empowerment, portraying the mm-hmm. the, the capacity for change, the right. the creative. Uh, capabilities of poor women of, uh, of women of color has become uh, really, I want to say, uh, just a, 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 an integral part of Cisneros's mission as a creative artist. Mm-hmm. And uh, to uh, to understand Esperanza's transformation in that way, rather than as you know rejecting Mexican culture, I think you know uh, really really shifts how we how we read that novel. Uh, but there's you know there's another part of it too, which is uh, Thinking about this, the um, uh, lyric poetry and the, the kind of uh, different theories that circulate about the, the status of the speaker in the lyric poetry, the, the, the I that speaks the poem. And um, that might be kind of going into the weeds a little bit too much, but maybe I'll just leave that as like a teaser. Like if you, if you want to like, uh, re- <laughs> if you really want to kind of get into it about lyric poetry, then you should, you know, you should, you obviously you should buy the book, but you should read that chapter because I, I kind of get into it a little bit. No, certainly, certainly. Well, and I think that's a, that, I think that is a great place to kind of leave off and, and leave that teaser. Um, we could honestly go on. I would love to talk a bit more about some of the other chapters, but uh, we are short <laughs> for time. 
and so we'll leave that. Yes, we do encourage our listeners to, to purchase the book, or at least encourage your libraries to and, and check it out. And, and it's just it's it's full of just wonderful examples and discussions of, of again how these again first as a literary history. I mean that's on its own. There's it's there's tons of value there with the book. But then also of course my my particular interest is this you know thorough line and through line of uh, you know this engagement uh, on on where you know the, the, these two literatures in particular and in, in institutions uh, intersect i think was just a you know a great intervention and, and, and a great project that's that's been a part of this book so thank you uh, yeah i did want to give you some you know time just a, a few minutes here to tell us uh, what it is you're working on now um, are you still engaged mostly in, in promoting this book are there other projects on the horizon uh, I have, yeah, I've started it. Uh, well, there's always like so much going on. So a couple of different things. So uh, um, I have two chapters of uh, Ends of Assimilation are specifically about poetry. There's that chapter about Sandro Cisneros and mm-hmm. then a chapter about uh, Jimmy Santiago Baca's poetry. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I've continued to uh, pursue uh, an interest in, in, in Latino poetry, um, uh, Chicano poetry and, and Latino poetry more generally. I, um, have uh, an essay that's going to be part of a, a, a volume coming up from Wesley and about uh, Rosa Alcala, uh, who's a poet I love that uh, uh, is a professor at, um, uh, uh, in the bilingual creative writing program at UTEP, and then a, a couple of other uh, kind of things in the works. So that's one uh, one sort of avenue that I'm continuing to pursue. But um, uh, I also have an, uh, and this is more my primary research interest right now, um, is a, a project that I'm working on uh, about uh, U.S. Spanish language newspapers in the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. And it's really building on, um, uh, you know, it's funny that you were talking about the institutionalized discourses because one of the, uh, one, one part of the um, research that I did for ends of assimilation that became very important to me was thinking about institutions and thinking mm-hmm. about the place of Chicano literature in institutions. Right. And uh, I began to think about, well, what's like, what is the longer story of institutions of, of, of Latino literature? And so the, the project that I'm working on now, uh, its main argument is that newspapers were the most important literary institution for Latino communities oh, yeah. in uh, the early 20th century. Uh, there's a huge, you know, there are uh, hundreds of these newspapers, and uh, they published an incredible, just uh, enormous body of literature. Much of it was uh, Latin American literature that was being circulated in the United States, but uh, there's a lot of original literary works, mm-hmm. uh, original poetry and, and fiction uh, written by uh, uh, by U.S. Latinos that, that uh, has been, you know, really kind of ignored. And uh, I'm uh, my the, my current research project is is a kind of archaeology, right? Trying to reconstruct. Of the literary world of U.S. Latino communities in the early 20th century, and uh, make an argument for its its vitality. I think that we uh, don't uh, don't really have a good understanding of the long durée of U.S. Latino literary history. Yes, you know, I I agree with that wholeheartedly, and I can't wait to see how that project develops because it uh, it really intersects a lot with you know the research that I do and um, more of you know. Chicano communities in Southern California, particularly Orange County, is my focus uh, between the 1930s and 1960s. Oh, I've started to unearth, you know, a lot of these. Uh, and when I say a lot, I mean a lot. I mean, I, I'm shocked as to how many ethnic newspapers I'm finding 
just little pieces of. Of course, there's no record in there's very little record in any type of a, an archive or listing, mm-hmm. publishers listing, mm-hmm. you know, even on Hispanic newspapers, search engine sites. You know, most of them don't exist. And but yeah. uh, the amount that I'm just finding existed in, in the, the few communities that I study, it really has gotten me to rethink how these communities existed and, and that there's this whole print culture, you know, institution, even as we're using that word that, that existed, you know, throughout that whole period. And it's throughout a period where, again, of course, the Latino communities were presumed to be small and mostly immigrant working class, not very intellectual, not really engaged with, you know, civic civics and, you know, letters and things right. of that sort. And, right. and you read these newspapers, it's just, it's the opposite picture is what emerges, right? And when you start yeah, to get grasp yeah. the the number of them, which is again, I mean, your your project is is really wonderful. It's going to be really hard, <laughs> you know, right? Trying to find them because you really you're looking for relics. Archaeology is the right well, term because you right. these things are buried right. in people's garages. They are, you know, maybe in a public library somewhere, one edition or half of a. Uh, you know, an edition of you know of, of a run that, that issued have a paper that maybe lasted for a year or two. So, right, yeah, that's, right, that's great work. I'm really excited to see how that comes out. Yeah, we should talk. It, yeah, I mean, your research sounds so exciting, and it sounds like there's there's a lot of overlap. Yeah, but really, you know, there's there's so much great work done on 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 the 19th century, mm-hmm. and you know, this a uh, kind of pre uh, you know. Um, uh, or earlier period of, of uh, Latino literary history, you know, Kirsten Silva Gruz and Raul Coronado and Jesse Aleman and uh, Rodrigo Lasso and Marissa Lopez, you know, so much great work. But I, um, I think that there's, I think that there's a gap there, at least in, in literary history, right? Mm-hmm. Um, those, those first decades of the 20th century where you know, there's some focus on some kind of big works like George Washington Gomez or, or, um, there's this uh, this novel called Don Chipote by Daniel Venegas that there's been some attention paid to, um, but I think the you know again you know I just think that the the literary world that uh, these communities moved in was was much richer and and more dynamic than than the the picture that we have of it so far. Right, definitely. Hey, John. Well, thanks again uh, for coming on to the podcast, and it's it's just been a pleasure talking to you about your work. And, uh, you know, best of luck, you know, in uh, your future uh, studies and ventures. And uh, I'm sure we'll bump into each other sometime soon. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the podcast. And I hope you've enjoyed my conversation today with John Alba Cutler, author of Ends of Assimilation, the Formation of Chicano Literature, published by Oxford University Press in 2015. I'd love to hear your comments and feedback on today's podcast, and you may provide that by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher and commenting there, or sending me an email directly at newbooksinlatinostudies at gmail.com. You may also reach out to me via Twitter or Facebook.